This episode of the Policy Viz podcast is brought to you by Juice Analytics. Juice is the company behind Juicebox, a new kind of platform for presenting data. It's a platform designed to deliver easy-to-read interactive data applications and dashboards. Juicebox turns your valuable analyses into a story for everyday decision makers. For more information on Juicebox or to schedule a demo, visit juiceanalytics.com. Welcome back to the Policy Viz podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabish. I'm joined today by Sarah Cliff, who is the senior editor at Vox.com. Sarah works on a variety of issues, mostly health and medicine. Prior to that, she was at the Washington Post and Politico. So, Sarah, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on. I'm very excited because I've been following a lot of the things you've been writing about lately. Of course, today being March 3rd with Donald Trump's new health care plan just released. You had a big article about that. And so I want to talk about a few of the projects that you've done at Vox, but let me start by asking, how does Vox differ from some of the previous places that you've worked, like the Washington Post and other places that are sort of these, you might consider them more traditional news agencies? Yes, yeah, so I'd say there's two big differences that stand out to me. I have my two-year anniversary last week. And, well, well, congratulations. Uh, yeah, thank you. I don't know. I didn't get any gift. I don't know what the traditional <laughs> two-year gift is, yeah, two but year, I guess I have yeah, to ask about that. Gift. Okay. Um, anyways, the two big differences that I noticed one is just um, not having a print component at all. Everywhere else I've worked up until now has had um, at least some sort of print edition. In Politico, it wasn't every day. It fluctuated with whether or not Congress was in session. But you always had to think about um, kind of what things would look like in print. At Fox, we don't have that restraint. So we're basically only working on one medium. We're working online. And that allows you to focus your efforts a little bit on one type of reader and um, think about how they would want information presented. So it's almost a little bit freeing in a way. We can talk later because there's so many different ways to present things online. Like you can do a chart, you can do an interactive chart, you could do a GIF of a chart. Right. So there's a lot of options, but you know, you're working in one medium essentially. So that's one big difference. The second one I'd say is since we're a pretty new outlet, there's no one to say, oh, that's not the way we do things here because we literally have no way that we do things. <laughs> yeah. So there's like a lot of experimentation Right now, we're trying to figure out, you know, how people interact with our website, how they interact with particular graphics. Like one of the examples, you know, we're seeing right now is that we really like um, building these like data rich interactives that um, people can like explore and poke around with. And um, I think that's, oh, that's so cool. We're giving people access to all this data. Mm -hmm. It turns out like no one actually clicks on that. Like sometimes they just want a flat chart and they just want to look at it and it'll load faster on their phone. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of experimentation right now about like what is the best way to present information. And it's especially easy to do an environment where you have very few um, things figured out yet. And do you find that there you can easily or, or maybe there's a categorization of the types of users who want the static chart versus the in-depth you know, data product that they can play around with? Yeah, I actually, I think it's not... um the type of person, but more of them, like where they're reading. So mm -hmm. if you think of like, you know, you're on your desktop and you're reading a story, it's like pretty easy to explore and click around and like change things in the story. But if you're on your phone, I think what's most important to you is like a really fast experience that mm -hmm. you just, you know, you don't want to get bogged down with this interactive that might be hard to manipulate on a small screen. So I, I think it's mostly about um, kind of where people are reading and less about who they are. And so I'm curious, do you find that when you're working on a story, 
that the content is driving how you're going to present the information or more about thinking about who the person is that's going to be reading it? Yeah, it's it's definitely both. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think content is probably first where we're thinking about like if we have something that'd be interesting to show in a visual way, like what is the right way to do that? And then, you know, one of the things we've had to think about more and more because we know that um, I believe the latest numbers are about 45% of Vox.com readers are on mobile that we have to think through, like, if we want to build this graphic, will it work on a phone? Mm -hmm. Um, So we kind of start with, like, what we want and then think through, like, how is this going to work on the different platforms that people are are reading us? Mm -hmm. I'm also curious, a lot of your writing seems to be based on research. Uh, academic research on health, on healthcare, health, health mm-hmm. policy. How do you work with researchers to sort of get that information out of the academic journals, out of the working papers and onto Vox? And do you think there's a place where researchers should be thinking more Vox-like, is for lack of a better word? Should mm-hmm. they be thinking about trying to communicate their work to a broader audience? Yeah, I think there's definitely space for that. So that, you know, the way I work with this is there's a handful of academic journals, mostly in the health policy space, that I read pretty regularly. Um, this would be things like Health Affairs, the New England Journal of Medicine, the Journal JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, think tanks like yours, um, you know, those sort of things. I'm generally, because I've been covering this for about seven years now, I've generally gotten to know a lot of the people in that space mm-hmm. and um, like have a good, pretty good sense of the landscape. So it's always helpful to me when researchers um, reach out to me and let me know like, hey, we have this thing we're working on that's going to be coming out. The um, IUD study you mentioned that... You, uh, no, you didn't mention that. We mentioned that before we right. started taping, right, right, yeah. so nobody knows about that. <laughs> I wrote a story <laughs> about um, the unplanned pregnancy rate being at a 30-year low and that IUDs are a large part of that. That was a story where, you know, a day before the research was coming out, the Guttmacher Institute, which um, had two authors on the paper, reached out to me and was like, hey, there, there's this paper coming out. Let us know if you want to talk to our researchers. So I, I think reaching out to the media is always helpful in terms of, you know, getting your research out. Mm-hmm. And then can I actually, I, I have one specific plea to any researchers who happen to be listening to this. One of the things that's a little hard about covering academic studies that I run into all the time is um, a lot of times, there, and I, I don't know if you could shed some light on this. A lot of times there's charts, they show some kind of interesting trend and like, Oh, that's so cool. I want to grab the numbers for certain years. And then you can't find the data. Right. And it's like this constant frustration of mine reading papers where um, I want to write about the data that's being expressed somewhere, but the actual numbers aren't available. So that's my one plea to researchers <laughs> is um, open your I data. love, yes, open your data. Um, and I don't think anyone's doing any, doing it like out of ill will. It's right. maybe an oversight. But um, if you're looking to fully share your research, making the, all, all the numbers that you're displaying in a graphic way also available as numbers is, is an awesome thing in my book. Yeah, I mean, I, I <laughs> would second that. I think there's a there's a couple reasons why researchers probably don't release the data along with the reports. Although now I'm seeing more academic journals require authors to publish the data along with, with the article. Oh, interesting. So for the American Economic Review and the Journal of Economic Perspectives, you have to put your data up oh, as well. Oh, that's great. But I think there's a couple parts to it. One is that it's not in the DNA of researchers uh-huh. right, to sort of like open everything up. And I think another reason is people feel very protective of right. their work, that this is a you know product that they've been doing for a long time and it's their project and that's the way it's going to be. Um, yeah. What often happens as an author you try to put everything you can onto the figures or into the mm-hmm. article. So you pack 
a scatter plot, for example, with every label of 75 right. points. And so no one gets anything. <laughs> Whereas if yeah. you said, here's just a couple labels and the Excel file or the CSV or whatever is on the website, then you sort of free yourself up. Right. So, because but, like the infuriating thing is I can see they have the data and they're willing to like sort of show it to me, but not <laughs> yeah. give me the, ex- not the whole so it's thing. Like, yeah. So it's the hard thing I run into. Yeah. And like, to be like, this was true of the, um, unplanned pregnancy article I wrote where it had a graph, but not the numbers used to make the graph. So I emailed the researchers and they very kindly sent me an Excel sheet right away with uh, the information. Right. But it'd be so much easier if it was just, if it was just, just there. Sitting right there. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that researchers, aside from opening their data, do you think they can learn how to communicate in these different ways? Can they think about doing better with their graphs? Can they think about, I mean, I'm, I'm just looking at, for example, I'm just looking at the, the unplanned pregnancy piece that you have here. And the title on the first graph is unintended pregnancies are at an all time low. Now, my mm-hmm. guess is the report yes. <laughs> has some sort of like nondescript title, but are these the sorts of things that researchers should be trying or should they try to stay in their lane and open their data so that people who are like you yeah. who are writing should take the data and do more with it? I don't, I mean, I don't know if researchers would feel uncomfortable with it, but I think if you're trying to get like more interest and like eyes on the things you're working on, mm-hmm. one of the things, you know, the headlines on our graphs are pretty intentional. And this is something we've got to get better at is one of the things we've realized is that a lot of our graphics and visualizations, they don't just live on our stories. People screenshot them, people take them and use them other places. They go on Facebook, they go on Twitter. So we try and think about a lot of our graphics, like, you know, the one you just read the title of. Mm-hmm. I want it to make sense in the story, but I also want it to be able to live on its own. So like right. if people want to share it on Twitter, it just like makes sense on its own to so the headline, it's essentially thinking like every graph we publish on Vox has to have its own headline, mm-hmm. not just a story. And um, that headline, I think of it as like an entry point for a reader who's like scanning over this piece. They're like, do I want to read this? In the kind of big, bold text I have, I want to throw like as many interesting facts at people right. to convince them that this is like something that they want to spend their time on when they have an entire internet of like calf gifts. Like I'm competing against an entire internet of cat <laughs> gifts or whatever. So I right. have to work really hard. So do all of us. Yeah. So I think, I don't know how like academic journals or think tanks would react to it, but I think it's a good move and mm-hmm. um, that anything you can do to kind of sell people. If you're doing this research, you clearly have decided like this is interesting enough to put a lot of time into. Like why not take the extra step of like, really using the tools you have to right. um, get people to look at it. Right. And do you find that writing in that way, writing sort of the more active headlines, but also thinking of a person may just look at the graph, they may just mm-hmm. look at this part. Has that changed the way you approach writing a story? A little bit. I mean, one of the things it does for the better is it forces you to sharpen your point a little bit because mm-hmm. you're kind of like, you're sometimes thinking about, well, if I had to like summarize this whole story in a tweet, like what would, what would I be doing? Mm -hmm. And those constraints kind of, they make it harder to kind of wander around in your story and not quite be sure what the point is. And then, you know, you kind of know the point of every graph that you're including. Like, I think I have another one lower down in there. That's um, something like IUD use has tripled since 2007. And that's like another one where you have to think through like, why am I including this? Mm -hmm. Like, what is this doing for me? And chances are like, if you can't write like a interesting headline for it, Mm -hmm. maybe it's not that useful. So I actually find headlines are hard to write. Doing it for every graph can feel like a little tedious and overwhelming. (laughs) But I generally find like it leads to a better story because I'm kind of like thinking through like, well, what's the point of this being here? Right. 
Right. So there's obviously a lot of talk these days about data journalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vox uh, came out around the fi- same time as 538 and the time that people were sort of talking about this. Mm-hmm. Um, do you call yourself a data journalist? I don't. I mean, I wouldn't be offended if anyone <laughs> did. Like, I don't think it's, I think you could actually like read my body of work mm-hmm. and like be like, oh no, maybe she is a data journalist. I don't know. Like most people here at Vox, you know, have made their own graphs, have like worked with academic reports, have like done a lot of things that might fall into the category of data journalists. And this isn't just true of writers, but also, you know, the people who make our videos and people who manage our Snapchat channel. Um, like all of them are working with numbers and things like one would consider data. You know, I've always just thought of myself as like a journalist and an editor. And like, I definitely write about data a lot. So, I'm not great at Excel. Maybe that's my like <laughs> dividing line. That's your dividing line. So maybe the better first question is how would you define data journalism? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, if you kind of go broad and say like, well, you know, anything involving data, then probably like pretty much all of us are right. data journalists. Which which seems odd because journalists have yes. been using data forever. Right. right. And then it's like not a new thing that like Vox right. or 538 invented. It's right. just like exactly. this thing that's been going on that like got like a fancy, got a fancy name. new name. Right. I mean, I think there's definitely an element of like being able to work with like big, complex data sets. And that's something mm-hmm. I can't do as well as a lot of my colleagues here can. So being able, for example, um, like my colleague, Duo, who's a news app developer here, who uh, was able to make her own database of every adverse reaction anyone's reported to the FDA for a supplement and then like use that to like understand kind of which supplements, um, these like nutritional supplements are most problematic. So I don't have the skill set to do things like that. So I think that might be one element of it that like keeps me from considering myself a mm-hmm. data journalist is this ability to work with very large data sets. Mm-hmm. But, but the small ones, I'm, I'm pretty good with those. <laughs> <laughs> But do you think people who are new to the journalism field or are going into school for journalism, do you think they need to be thinking of themselves that they have to become data journalists, that they need to be able to work with large data sets, that they need to have all these skills? I mean, do you think new journalists need to be sort of the unicorn or can they focus in and, and find something that hopefully that they really like, but they're also really good at and focus on that skill? Yeah, I think the answer is probably either. Um, I think there's... I mean, one of the nice things about the way newsrooms are going is it seems like there's a lot of different jobs that are available. Mm-hmm. We still have like a lot of traditional writers and we have people making videos and graphics and people who are doing work with these like larger data sets. So I think, you know, that group of people, just because data sets are getting larger and larger and there's more and more of them, um, that that group of people is growing within the newsroom. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely, you know, a space to go into. But I don't think it's a must have like when i look at the vox newsroom and you know we're considered kind of a data journalism website we have maybe like two or three people with those kind of large database skills but then we have like tons of people who are like very familiar with reading an academic paper with making their own charts with like managing smaller data sets so i'd say that's definitely a pretty widespread skill but i think one that's pretty easy to learn more about right so let's talk about the team then, if you have a yeah. bunch of people coming together, because you had this um, story that came out just a couple of weeks ago on today's team. So you want to talk about that that story a little bit and talk about the, the team that you pulled together to, to put, yeah. uh, put that out? Um, yes, yeah, so that's one of my favorite things we've done recently. And it was a project with myself, um, Sue Oh, who I mentioned, who's a news application developer here at Vox, and um, Sarah Frosten, a graphics reporter here. The thing that made it work is it was super collaborative. And basically how it started 
was since I'm a healthcare reporter, I spent a lot of time with CDC data. And one of the things I noticed kind of like getting these every other year reports is that like teen behavior kept getting better and better, which is like something you don't expect. There's a lot of like, you know, like get off my lawn. Like it looks like kids are probably up to no good sort of thing. But if you look at these data sets and it's something it's you, you probably wouldn't notice it if you're just looking at like one report, like one annual release. But like since I'd been following this release, it's called um, the YRBS, Youth Risk Behavior Surveillance mm-hmm. Survey. Since I've been following it, I've kind of seen that there are these trends going on. And um, I kind of thought, like, wouldn't it be cool if we could show people how they stack up to today's teens? And that's where I knew I needed Sue's help because she's can build something like that. So the story we built is one that changes depending on how old you are. So up near the top of the story, we ask folks to enter in their age. And then we can tell them, you know, teens today are X percent less likely to drink and X percent less likely to have sex. And when you were a kid, this many um, teens drank alcohol and now it's fallen to this number. So we were able to generate this story that was very specific to our reader. And the way we were able to do that is Sue and I like literally sit next to each other <laughs> at work. So I was constantly like telling her, here's what my story looks like. And she's like, well, here's what I can actually do or hey you know i see that's like an interesting data point here might be a good way to display it um so it's really um i think one of the problems that can often happen i don't know if this is true in academia but at least in journalism a a way a story like this might work is like i might just send someone like sue like a complete finished draft and be like here's my story like make some cool things for it right but um this was much more collaborative like sue was looking at what i was writing i was like understanding what technical things are possible. You know, we were working in tandem to kind of make the best project we can. Mm -hmm. And it turned out great. Um, It did super well in traffic. People really liked it. And it was an interesting data set. I think that's kind of um, where any good project has to start. Like the data actually told a really interesting story. Mm -hmm. And that was really important to making it work. What I found really interesting and and unique and, and great about it actually is that you have this opportunity as the reader to basically change the story or have the story become personalized for you. So you get right in the beginning, you have this little slider where you can select the year in which you were, as the reader were born. Mm-hmm. And then the text sort of updates with all the numbers relevant to your, your experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't really see that a, a ton in, even though we have all these data, we have all this data out there that people are telling stories about. We don't actually see a lot of this personalization of, of the data. Yeah, it was one thing we worried about because kind of to circle back what I, to what I said earlier is like one of the things we see in our analytics is that people don't like to click on things. Like you really, people just want to kind of use the swipe motion with their fingers and like go through stories. So if you're going to ask someone to do something, the payoff has to be good. And in this case, the payoff was good. Like you got a personalized story about that compared you to um, today's teenagers and people were interested enough that one of the things we saw, which was really surprising and rare for one of our stories is that we had more interactions than we had page views, which suggests that um, people were going back and changing it because they wanted to see how the story changed right. when they changed the year. And that's like very rare for our stories. Usually page views are much higher than interactions. So yeah, it was a lesson. Like we can get people to interact with their stories, but like we also have to be cognizant of like, you know, we're asking them to do something and to deliver a good payoff. Right. I'm also curious, and we'll, we'll sort of end here, even though uh, I think the next question we could probably talk about for a long time, which is on storytelling and stories more generally. There's obviously a big focus these days on telling stories with data or, or storytelling more generally. Mm-hmm. I'm not really sure how to define that, to be honest. Um, <laughs> but this piece in particular on teens seems to get at more of the personal side. So 
how important is it for you when you're trying to write a story to make those personal connections, either with on the side where the user is going through the, the story or when you're mm-hmm. interviewing people and trying to bring their story into an article where you're, you know, sort of putting in a, in a larger framework of data that you're using to tell a story? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, generally, I don't know if I speak for Vox, um, Vox as a whole, but generally in my stories, you know, I find that actual human stories are... Um, a very good way to get people interested in the, you know, data sets you're trying to talk about. A good example of that is I spent last year doing this project on um, fatal medical errors and like the number of fatal medical errors, it's just, like mind boggling and hard to wrap your head around. I forget the exact number, but I think most estimates um, kind of peg it around 200,000 Americans dying as a result of medical mistakes every year. And just kind of like this mind boggling big number. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I started off this project I was doing with an explainer with these numbers and like it did fine. It got like some visitors. But the story that really hit was the story about this four year old girl in California who um, experienced a number of hospital acquired infections during her last year of life and died just before her fourth birthday. And that like really drove it home that like mm-hmm. these are not just numbers, that there's like a story about this girl who died a month before her fourth birthday because she kept getting these infections in her hospital and her condition kept deteriorating. And there are her parents who have had to deal with the aftermath of this and the doctors who have had to deal with the aftermath of this. So, I mean, I think stories are very powerful. I think one of the hard things for us as journalists is often making sure like the stories and the data line up. Like mm-hmm. obviously you don't want to pick an outlier and you want to like make the stories faithful to the data. And sometimes you have great data sets and it's like really hard to find the right face for them. So it's definitely a challenge, but I think it really enhances data actually having um, kind of people and faces and the people who make up the data associated with it. Yeah. This has been great. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, of course. So everyone go out, take a look at Sarah's work on Vox. Um, You also have a podcast, The Weeds, right? I do. Yes, The Weeds, every week, usually on Fridays. Usually on Fridays. So um, you should also listen to The Weeds, talking about all of the interesting stuff that Vox writes about. Um, Sarah, thanks again for coming on the show. This yeah, has been really course. interesting. And yeah. thanks to everyone for listening. If you have comments or questions, please do let me know. So until next time, this has been the Policy Viz Podcast. This episode of the Policy Viz podcast is brought to you by Juice Analytics. For 10 years, Juice has been helping clients like Aetna, the Virginia Chamber of Commerce, Notre Dame University, and U.S. News and World Report create beautiful, easy-to-understand visualizations. Be sure to learn more about Juicebox, a new kind of platform for presenting data at juiceanalytics.com. And be sure to check out their book, Data Fluency, now available on Amazon.